Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week a true legend of crime fiction, the novelist Karen Slaughter. Karen launched onto the scene in 2001 with her first novel, Blindsighted, which marked the beginning of the Grant County series. Since then, she has gone on to write more than 20 instant New York Times bestselling novels, including the much-loved Will Trent series, which is due to be televised by Disney. Karen's second-to-none storytelling has caught the eye of many a producer, with her 2018 novel Pieces of Her being released as a limited series on Netflix starring Tony Collette. Karen has built a loyal fan base with her stories that defy you to put them down and has garnered readers from across the globe. On top of a very successful career as a novelist, she is the founder of the Save the Libraries, a non-profit organisation which was established to support libraries and library programming, a cause that those of us at Mostly Books and many of our listeners will be passionate about. Karen Slaughter, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I believe you're a native of Georgia, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so you grew up there and was reading something you're interested in from an early age or was that something that came later to you? Oh, absolutely. I loved reading almost from the get-go. Before I was even in in school, I was always reading. My father read to me, uh, unlike my sisters who are basically illiterate, I was really interested (laughs) in stories and it was a great bonding time for us because my dad was one of those working dads, you know, where he was always at, at work and always doing a yep. work function. So when he came home, that was our time together for him to read to me. And as well as, um, you know, as well as reading stories, was was the interest in writing from an early age or, or did that? Yeah. Yeah. I joke about my sisters. Obviously, I love <laughs> at least one of them. But you know, a lot of my stories I wrote were about my sisters being kidnapped or mutilated or taken away. And I'm the youngest of three girls. So that was my fantasy was to be an only child. And and my dad really encouraged that. He would give me a quarter every time I wrote one. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I had a very, very captive audience with my father. My sisters were not fans of my work, uh, but uh, I loved it. They were reading the stories thinking, you know, why do all these horrible things keep happening to us in these stories? Exactly. And should we be worried about something happening when we're asleep? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's wonderful as well. That's something, you know, speaking to other guests we've had on the podcast, you said that you had that captive audience with your father, that sort of early encouragement seems to be a a crucial thread that links many writers, you know, that from an early age, they were as opposed to always stop worrying about, you know, stop focusing on these sort of fantasies, these stories that was actually actively encouraged. Absolutely. And, you know, my dad would take me to the library every weekend and tell me, you can read any book you want. Just promise me if you have questions about something or you don't understand something, you'll ask me about it. And, you know, it, Probably he had some conversations with his little girl that he didn't want to have because of that, because I was reading absolute trash. 
but uh, <laughs> it, it was good, you know, and I think that's really good parenting. We have uh, some horrible people in America right now who want to ban books and keep them out of libraries as if they can police yes. everyone else's child when I think they should be just focusing on their own children. Uh, but dad was really open about that. And he understood that I was going to find stuff on my own anyway. And it was better to have an open conversation about it than for me to, you know, keep it to myself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's interesting because that's a conversation we have in the shop a lot because, of course, books for, books for children, you can give a sort of a vague age rating. But in terms of content, books aren't the same as movies. We don't say, or you definitely, you know, you legally sort of, as it were, can't read this book because of certain content content if you're under a certain age and you know we do have children out recently we had a uh, a family in and one of their children who I think is sort of 12 13 loves you know Stephen King and some people would say no like that's maybe a bit too old for them but I always have gone for the opinion that if the interest is there it's sort of you know if you try and sort of block it off then it kind of creates the opposite to the desired effect you actually you know to sort of feed that interest is 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 the best thing to do yeah absolutely and you know no offense to children but they're they're pretty stupid about a lot of things and if i know when i read stuff like that of course i was reading stephen king at 10 and 11 i didn't understand it it didn't stop me from enjoying the story a lot of stuff just went over my head that's kind of the fun of it it's it's a lot like cartoons you know when you're a kid and you watch bugs bunny you don't understand there's a lot of political stuff going on in there there's some Mm, really funny stuff adults get that children don't get and I think good books work on every level for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, from those early, you know, those early interactions with books, are there, are there any particular titles that stand out for you that you feel were particularly sort of formative to who you are now? Well, you know, there was a, a, a series of books called Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah. Just about this snotty little twerp named Encyclopedia Brown, who knew they called him Encyclopedia because he just knew all these details. He was a bit like a Sherlock right. Holmes hey. um, without the heroine. And so I love that. I love the puzzle aspect yeah. of it. And I really enjoyed trying to figure it out. Uh, and I think that gave me an early love of. The, the sort of puzzles that you read in crime novels. Yeah. But I also think if you read across the board as a kid, things like fantasy or dystopia or whatever, that you have a much wider uh, love of all kinds of books as an adult. Yes. So I read a lot of sci-fi. Uh, one book I particularly remember was called The Forever Formula. And it, it really bothered me because it was about this uh, dystopian future where really wealthy people could buy the bodies of young people and transplant their brains into young people, uh, which as a kid I found terrifying, but as an adult, I I really wish they had that technology (laughs) now uh, because I would absolutely sign up for it to to have my young knees back. (laughs) First Um, line. (laughs) But, you know, it it was really – it's good sci-fi talks a lot about mm. society in a way, you know, even when you're reading something like um, the Martian Chronicles, you're kind of reading about suburban Chicago in yes. a way, right? Because pe- writers write what they know, even if the setting is different. And, you know, you, I just really keyed into books that had atmosphere and world building. And that's something that influenced my work, I think, later on. But also, you know, the biggest influence is probably Flannery O'Connor. 
because I was such a strange little girl. You know, I'm writing these stories about my sisters being mutilated and that's not something you expect from a six and seven year old girl to, to, to be writing. Mm. And my father encouraged it, but of course, you know, there were lots of conferences at school about them being worried about the subject of, of my stories and me having this very dark sense of humor. And I was kind of made to feel like I was an outsider or something was wrong with me. And then I found Flannery O'Connor, who was this very strange woman living in a small South Georgia town. And she was celebrated for these stories. And I I kind of felt really angry when I found her because I thought, you guys should have told me about this. Uh, And maybe I wouldn't have felt like such an outsider or like something was wrong with me. Yes. And do you think that comes from, you know, that sort of idea that, I don't know, sort of the macabre or stories that are a bit sort of darker? You know, some people have a, you know, some people just that doesn't particularly sort of do it for them, but that they see people who are into that, who enjoy those sort of stories. Do do you think there's a kind of a misunderstanding of where that interest comes from, where that desire to either read or create those stories comes from? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's the the sense of the Southern Gothic, right? Um, And my dad always told dark stories when we were growing up, you know, some of them had cautionary tales like the little girl who touched the thermostat and died, (laughs) or you know, things, things of that nature, you know, just trying to warn us off uh, wasting electricity. Um, But, you know, he, he made fun of our cousins and our aunts and that's a very typical dark Southern sense of humor. You know, usually something really awful happens, but it's kind of a punchline, you know, like someone, I I, I remember one time I was at a a bookstore in very deep South Georgia uh, owned by this wonderful woman named Miss Virginia. I don't know her last name, but we all called her Miss Virginia Uh, And she had such a fascinating life during World War II. She was in England, actually, and she and a bunch of women swam across the English Channel, apparently. And she said, oh, well, it's nothing to be impressed by. You know, we held on to the boat most of the time. (laughs) Um, So she was definitely um, dismissing her accomplishments, which is also a very Southern woman thing to do. But she was talking to me about another author. And she said, it's so tragic. He's a podiatrist, but he lost both his feet in a fire. And I thought that is such a typical Southern story. You know, we all have an uncle like that or someone, uh, you know, named Skip who lost a leg, uh, you know, off a stupid bed or something like that. So I'm very conscious when I tell stories about, I mean, that's definitely world building, right? Yes, absolutely. And and in, even even something as simple in, as directions in the South, we call them country directions. It's never go right on Main Street. It's go right at that house with the big dog. And that's Miss Kitty's dog. So be careful because he bit the mailman last yes, week. Yeah. And, you know, then you'll see that big oak tree. But, the, you know, be careful because it's haunted. So there's always a, a deeper, darker story about everything. And, and that's what I feel when I write. It's just that sense of history. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. Because yeah, that, that sort of shows, yeah, that very much, I don't know, that that your, you know, your life as a storyteller is v- very much based in, you know, w- where you're from and where you grew up. Um, yes, I love that idea that, you know, even something as simple as directions become become a narrative. It's, you know, it, it's not just a case of left and right, that it becomes a story that you can follow. 
Um, in terms of reading, is there a recent book that you've read that particularly stands out to you, something that you've enjoyed? You know, I really enjoy historical fiction. Yep. I mean, particularly in America right now, what's old is new again. Uh, I was reading a lot of Hawthorne, but it got a bit too depressing that uh, we're kind of returning to that puritanical collectivism here uh, lately. Yes. So I had to stop reading that. Um but I, one book I read really enjoyed by Karen Joy Fowler, his piece of historical fiction called Booth, which is about right. John Wilkes Booth's family. Yeah. Um, and not just him. Of course, he assassinated President Lincoln. Yeah. He was an actor. Um, but I didn't know that much about the family. And most Americans don't. Um, I didn't realize that he came from this incredible acting family. They were very liberal uh, his brother actually dined at the White House with Lincoln because he was such a celebrated supporter of the oh, anti-slavery wow. yes. movement and just how he became radicalized. And it's yep. very similar to a lot of the radicalization we're seeing, not just in America, everywhere right now, you know, where these disaffected young men who feel like their life isn't what they think they deserve. Yes, yeah. And uh, of course, he was not as famous or as popular as his brother, though he was well known in his own right. Um, but just feeling kind of lost and latching on to this lost cause narrative. Mm. Uh, and that that was really interesting to me to just kind of compare it to what's going on today. Yes. And I suppose that's, you know, it's a great example of how something, you know, like genre fiction, you know, historical fiction can explore those ideas that are very pertinent to today. And would you say that's something that, you know, you find as a crime writer that, you know, that it's that through these kind of this, this genre fiction, it's a way of exploring sort of other ideas or things going on in the world right now? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a little safer when you set something in the past. I, I had a novel called Cop Town, and it dealt with the 1970s and what it was like to be a woman in policing. And, yep. you know, quite honestly, talking to women who are cops, uh, things have changed, obviously, but they haven't changed enough. And women still have to put up with a great deal of crap when they're in what's considered male territory. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even it, when I was writing Girl Forgotten, my latest book, I, part of it's set in 1982, and I'm writing about uh, reproductive rights and yep. a, a young girl who's basically canceled at her high school. And I thought, God, you know, through no fault of my own, this became suddenly very topical to what's going on in the present. Yes. Yeah. That these stories that, you know, you can enjoy as a, you know, I think that's the joy of them. You can enjoy the story, but there's always something else underneath that you can take away with you. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask you a very big question now, which I always, I always feel slightly bad for asking our guests on this podcast podcast because it, it's a it's a big question a book that changed your life well you know i would say gone with the wind yeah for several reasons so i read it as a young girl and you know raised in a, a school system that very much was given to the lost cause narrative yep. you know slavery wasn't that bad <laughs> Uh, you know, most most people fighting for the Confederacy were doing it for honor and states' right, rights. Yep. And so reading that as a, a young girl and being immersed in that sort of false narrative of history, it resonated to me. Yep. It's, it's a really damn well-written book, you know, if you ignore historical contra contrast and, and accuracy. You know, it's a beautifully written story. Yep. And then as I got older... 
and became more educated about the war and the civil war and what that was really about and how horrifically enslaved people were Mm. treated and, you know, just kind of looked at it through an adult's eyes as a piece of propaganda. It's remarkable. Yes. And you can understand, you know, so Margaret Mitchell wrote it in the 1930s and she was raised by her grandparents had been through the civil war. So she had a memory of that and contrast that with the fact that she was also a remarkable feminist. Yes. Uh, She was a divorced woman. She worked at the Atlanta Journal newspaper. And uh, part of her reporting was to do these crazy jobs for a day. Like one day she hung from the side of a building and did brick pointing. And the next (laughs) day she did window cleaning. I mean, she was doing stuff that women should not have been allowed to do based on the time period. And her mother was very much a suffragist. So, you know, you have this really remarkable woman who was also from the upper white middle class in Georgia, uh, who later in life was a great contributor to one of our historically black colleges and universities in Atlanta to help uh, black men become doctors and men, of course, because only men were allowed to become doctors. So, I mean, just as a a fixture of the South, she was a fascinating Mm. woman. And so that book, I think, really affected me as far as, you know, hitting me at different points in my life, at different education points in my life, and giving me a deeper understanding of where I came from, why we're seeing a lot of the crazy shit we're seeing now, because a lot of people read God with a Wind and take it at face value and think, oh, the you know, the noble confederate. Uh, fighting for his family and, you know, his way of life. Well, his way of life was enslaving people, you know? So it it really is a a seminal work that I think informed me as a person and as a writer, because that's what I always want to do when I write is interrogate the story. Why do people feel the way Mm. they do? How did they get to this point? interrogate the story. Yes, I like that. Yes, I mean, it's just a great example of the power of narratives, the power of stories that, you know, something like Gone with the Wind, it can sell you an idea. And it doesn't matter, you know, particularly how false that idea is, it can, if told well enough, you know, it can absolutely sort of uh, take you in. Uh, and and bring you in. And that's interesting because I've spoken to, again, our other guests, you know, before about stories that they've read when they were younger that they loved and they still love now, but just how that story has evolved in their mind as they've got older, as they've become aware of new things. So that's something you, that interrogating of the story, that's something that you approach in your own work. And in terms of, you know, is there any for you? I mean, I'm not asking you to pick one of your, your works, but, you know, was your first novel, was that particularly sort of life-changing for you as well in terms of that being your first sort of entry into publishing and and that world? Yes, absolutely. You know, the thing about being a writer is you should try every genre, I think, to see what works for you. And being from the South, you know, and of this great Southern tradition, I thought that I needed to write the great Southern novel and literary fiction. I had such a chip on my shoulder. And (laughs) once I gave that up and said, you know what? I love big commercial fiction. I love thrillers. That's what I need to be doing. And that's when I, you know, not to sound all arty farty, (laughs) but that's when I found my voice. That's when the story resonated for me. And writing unflinchingly about violence, particularly against women, and showing it for what it was, 
and what it is, yeah. rather. That was when I really found my voice. That's, yeah, finding that losing of, I don't know, the or ignoring sort of expectations, whether, you know, sort of external or in, internal seems to be for a lot of writers, the sort of the moment when it clicks and, you know, you just start writing the stories that feel right for you, you know, the stories that you want to tell. And they always say, don't they, re- you know, write the book that you would want to read, you know, and of course, you can't always do that because there's so many writers out there from their different points of view. Is that something that rings true for you? Absolutely. And I 1000% agree. You should write the book you want to read. If only because, you know, most of us love reading and we know what's out there and we know what we enjoy. And for me, I want to, you know, fill, fill a gap that I feel like is missing and, you know, add my voice to the wonderful people who are writing out there. Absolutely. Now, Karen, I'm really sorry. I have to, to cut a short. I know you've got a busy schedule today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, your new novel, uh, Girl Forgotten, is out now. Um, and um, yet will be available on the Mostly Books uh, website and in our store as well. Um, Karen Slaughter, thank you so much for joining us at Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us.